Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Can ISIS Create a Viable Caliphate. And I am joined now by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Mark Moyer, senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the basics here. This this term caliphate, something that a term that's been swimming around for an awful long time in the history of the region, but one that probably up until a few weeks ago didn't get a lot of attention in the in the wider press when we hear this term for our audience uh what what is distinctive about a caliphate what makes the caliphate different than say a conventional state in the middle east the government of which is informed by um by the practice of islam well it's an entity that at least aspires to transcend national borders and to represent all of islam and we've not had such a caliphate since 1924, with the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, which, uh, of course, at one time did preside over most of the uh, Muslim world. Uh, but the idea today is ostensibly to claim uh, that heritage and to to possess authority over the uh, entire Muslim world. Of course, right now they only have portions of Syria and Iraq, but at least in theory they would aspire to speak for all Muslims. And of course, the question that implies, which you address in your piece, is whether or not once they have taken control of territory, they can actually govern it effectively. And you mentioned the fact that there is something of a precedent where this is concerned, which is that in recent history, when Islamists take over the organs of power, they tend to rule with too heavy a hand, and they sometimes also just don't deliver on the basic mechanics of government, delivering public services. In the, in the case of ISIS, is there a chance that they avoid those pitfalls, or is that just something that we could we should think of as inherent to Islamism as a political force? They certainly seem to have learned the lesson of some of the earlier attempts where they failed to provide the services and were too draconian in their punishment. So we've seen ISIS has actually been pretty good at running municipal governments in a lot of places. As far as the draconian law, they've dialed back a bit, although we are still seeing some pretty cruel uh, punishments for relatively minor offenses, so it's not quite as clear how they're going to do on that. But certainly they have figured out that they do need to be able to actually govern, and uh, they are certainly making significant progress, and they're governing fairly effectively in parts of Syria and Iraq right now. Is there a is there a tension that is inherent in that? Because it seems like, if you think about it, you – you have to, if you're in ISIS's position, be somewhat draconian on enforcing these rules just because that's that's part and parcel of the ideology. By the, by the same token, if you push it too far, you are undermining your ability to to govern effectively in these areas. Is that is that tension sort of at the at the root of what the problem is for groups like ISIS in situations like this? Yeah, well, their version of Islam is really not in the mainstream and it's not particularly popular in much of the Muslim world and they ban a lot of things that people tend to enjoy like smoking or listening to music and so 
they are confronted with that sort of cultural clash. Now, what they do have going for them is that they are seen as the one movement that's really been pretty effective militarily. And so even a lot of Muslims who might not care for those draconian rules uh, are willing to get behind them. You know, we've seen in France, ISIS is actually pretty popular among a lot of Muslims, even people who might not agree with their social position. Uh, and, and we've also seen with the Taliban in Afghanistan in the past that um, even if, if people don't necessarily like some of the harsh punishments, they may accept them as a necessary uh, evil, especially in light of some of the chaos we've seen. Uh, Muslims would tend to prefer order over chaos, even if it means some pretty tough justice. You you mentioned earlier in the interview that there is nothing in the concept of a caliphate that really implies geographical constraints. It certainly doesn't recognize existing borders. So the whole world theoretically could be – end up in being in the caliphate. But you say in your piece that as a prudential matter, it's actually in ISIS's best interest not to try and accumulate lots of territory right now. Why is that? Well, They've learned again another lesson that's been learned from some of the recent experiments that it's if you try to push too far, you're going to invite a uh, foreign intervention. You know, we saw with the Taliban in Afghanistan when 9/11 attacks led to uh, attacks against them. We've seen in uh, Mali when the Islamists tried to take the whole country that the French came in, and certainly the United States and Iran, among others, are watching this situation very closely, and if they think ISIS really gets too powerful, they are going to do something a lot more drastic. So uh, for them, th their chances of survival are best if they don't try to push too far and too fast. But at the same time, given their ideology and their claims to represent all Muslims, they are under some pressure to to expand. So they've got a that's one of the challenges they are going to have to confront. Mark, if their behavior invites that kind of response, where's the appropriate place for the response to come from? It does seem as over the past couple of weeks there has been some debate over whether this is primarily a Middle Eastern problem that maybe Western powers, especially the United States, should be helping with or one that is a sufficient threat to the United States that we should take a more forward role there. Who who needs to be the one who is primarily responsible for creating the response to ISIS? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and uh, you know, President Obama just recently came out and said that essentially we didn't have a strategy for dealing with ISIS in, in Syria as of yet. I mean, we essentially have one in Iraq, but we're going to have to deal with them in Syria as well. And so you know, the big question is really who is going to have to take charge of that. I mean, the U.S. has said we'll support people, but it, it looks unlikely that we're going to send troops in, and I think uh, – you know, you certainly have the Assad government in Syria still has some capability, and they're of course supported by the Iranians. And uh, you know, a lot of people think the Iranians are kind of waiting for ISIS to beat up the more moderate rebels, and then the Syrians are going to come in and and uh, beat up ISIS, which they might well do. Although it's still this problem of ISIS in Iraq, and I think we're hoping we can get the Iraqis to uh, to do some of that. But with the question becomes is I mean, certainly all Americans would prefer someone else do this, but right. uh, you know it's not yet clear that someone else is actually capable of doing this. So how long do you want to let ISIS fester if if there's a you know major terrorist attack perpetrated by ISIS against the United States, I think Americans then will start to really have to wonder whether 
American forces have to become more directly involved. How big of a concern is a scenario like that? I realize that may be unanswerable in a, in a specific fashion, but I think for an American audience, which ours primarily, though not exclusively, is they, they could be forgiven for being confused over the last few weeks for not if they don't understand to what extent what's going on in that part of the world poses a direct threat to the United States. What what are the implications for us stateside in the rise of ISIS? You know, the biggest fear is that they will take some Western individuals. Uh, there's right now an estimated 2,000 people in uh, ISIS or tied to ISIS who have American or European passports. And if they leave, they can potentially get into the United States fairly easily to carry out some type of attack. And now that they have the sanctuary area, that gives them a fair amount of freedom to plot. So I think the biggest fear is that one or more uh, individuals from the United States or Europe is going to sneak into the United States or Europe and carry out some kind of violent act. And of course, we're, people are paying a lot of attention to this to try to keep that from happening. But uh, you know, I think there's general recognition that there's no sh- completely surefire way that you're going to be able to keep those 2,000 people out or or other individuals from who are in Syria right now from from leaving the country. Uh, so that is really the biggest concern. Again, if that happens, that'll be really uh, a, a fundamental cause, a fundamental change, I think, in the U.S. approach to the region. When we're considering the issue of the caliphate, we can even abstract this away from the specific instance of, of ISIS, though it certainly bears on what ISIS is doing. How – how viable is that no matter how you're constructing it? I mean the thing that is striking when you think about this sort of pan-Islamic political project is that that vision sort of glosses over the fact that there are, there are a lot of differences in, in the Muslim world. There are a lot of ethnic differences. There are a lot of sectarian differences. There are cultural differences. I mean how, how plausible is that idea and how much receptivity is there for that across the Islamic world? Yeah, well, there are certainly some – critical divides. I mean, for one, the Sunni-Shiite split right there is is one that I don't think they're ever going to be able to get over. So at most, they could aspire to represent through Sunni Islam. But then there's also, as you mentioned, there's different sects, there's different nationalities and ethnicities. And we've already seen a lot of other Muslims uh, rejecting the theology of ISIS and so it seems pretty unlikely, I think, you're ever going to get to the point where there is general recognition that this organization sp- speaks broadly for, for Muslims. Uh, like I said, I think with, if it's confined to Syria and Iraq, um, you know, through their force, their ability to govern, they can potentially build a lot of support there. But but as I said earlier, I think if they try to push too much beyond that, they're going to run into to opposition. So in terms of becoming sort of a global entity, I don't think their prospects are good. So final question I'll put to you. With those dynamics that you've just laid out, what from our Western perspective are the best and worst case scenarios for how this plays out with ISIS over the, the near and maybe the midterm? And I think the best case would be that um, some of the local powers within the Middle East, uh, potentially Iraq, again, it's 
not clear that Iraq necessarily can do this, but potentially Iraq, the Kurds in Iraq, uh, the Saudis, uh, and maybe even the Syrian government are going to take action and, and crush ISIS without uh, a great amount of foreign involvement. I think you certainly would need U.S. air power to do that at a minimum. Uh, so I think that's certainly possible. Again, it seems unlikely at the moment that the U.S. wants to get involved to that extent. Uh, the worst case, I think, is that that uh, ISIS continues to thrive. They continue to amass money from the oil that they've controlled now and that they perpetrate some kind of uh, terrorist attacks uh, against the United States or its allies. All right. Our guest has been Mark Moyer, senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of the group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.